Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 14 of the Movement as Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr, with my amazing co-host, Brendan Rerick, coming to you from the West Coast in sunny California. How are you doing today, Brendan? Well, I think we're both tired, but we're going to do it anyways. Tired's a mindset, Brendan. <laughs> well, then my yeah. mindset is tired. <laughs> yeah, mine as well, actually. I'm not going to lie, but... It is a nice uh, long weekend, you know. So we're recording on a Monday. Uh, yep. You know, happy Memorial Day! Shout out to all of those who gave their lives. We're a day to remember uh, our brave veterans who lost their lives in the, the line of duty. So remember that, that while you're doing your day do, off and that's right in your barbecuing and enjoying like your day today. Exactly. Uh, they would say freedom isn't free. Somebody paid for it. So that's right. uh, happy Memorial Day to you out in California. Oh, happy Memorial Day to you and anybody who's listening who is a veteran or uh, and then obviously anyone who gave their lives. We've got to thank. So here we are. Uh, episode Absolutely. 14. I know. And so kind of going through in preparation, I know we get a lot of questions either in the strength coach forum or on the CFSC members page or on YouTube or on Instagram that gets sent to us. And we kind of just want to sift through some of those. Um, but in saying that right now, if you're listening, um, please, if you have questions that you want us to answer on the podcast, uh, please feel free to either send them to us on social media, to the movement is medicine, Instagram, um, to, to my Instagram, to Brendan's Instagram, or whatever means you want to reach us. Um, I know our contact information is out there. We're always looking for questions. Uh, we get a pretty steady stream of them, but please, if there's something you, you want us to cover, a topic you want us to discuss, don't hesitate to submit because we'll, we'll try to get that in the rotation for an upcoming episode for sure. Um, and so it's one of the ones, a couple of the good ones we had this week. One um, I think we're going to start off with was specifically – um, training older populations and working in power exercise. So the question said, many of my clients are 50 or 60 or over, and what are the best power exercises for them? Can you please break them into upper and lower? Um, and many of them have restrictions. Um, what exercises might you use for an older population to develop power? And it's a good question because, um, as you know, as people get older, um, they might have limitations due to previous injuries that might make it difficult to program many of the traditional power exercises that you might do with some of your younger, more athletic position uh, uh, athletes. So things like hang cleans or loaded jumps or bounding or hopping. Some of these exercises you might not be as willing to program for an older population. But on the other side of that, um, we know that as people get older, the thing that they lose quickest is their nervous system's ability to produce force rapidly. We tend to lose our ability to produce fat power uh, twice as fast as our ability to actually just maintain our strength. And so it becomes a uh, really important thing for us to make sure we're continuing to train the nervous system to contract rapidly. But we have to do so in a way that keeps them healthy. So um, I know, Brendan, that uh, we've kind of talked about this a lot. Um, and we talk with our coaches at CFSC about this a lot, but what are some exercises that you tend to find favorable for clients as they get older? Well, as you get older, 
uh, and you work with older clients or the older population, power becomes all relative. So a true plyometric exercise has very, very short contact times. So these are the cool stuff you see on the gram or on YouTube where you're doing depth jumps into a box jump or hurdle jumps or that the ground contact times are very, very short and explosive. Um, and when I say relative, basically anything faster than walking for somebody who is older is a challenge to the nervous system. So that means power, power and quotation drills look different. Um, and then the simplest one for lower body is a ladder. And so no lat ladder doesn't make you faster if you're an athlete necessarily. Um, but it does challenge the nervous system. It challenges your balance. It, it gets you moving faster than walking. It challenges you in different planes of motion. And it's really, really fun to do when you do it with a group of adults or even when we do it in our group, our CFSC groups is probably the most fun and most exciting thing that we do in our courses. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can challenge somebody, um, in, in a ladder. There's so many different drills you can do. So ladder drill is probably the quickest, easiest, cheapest, simplest that you can just throw a ladder out and you're going to challenge that person's nervous system. It's it's also kind of like brain games. We've talked about Carla Hanover's Smart Moves book. It's it's a challenge for your brain, especially if it's mm -hmm. if it's uh hasn't gotten uh, jogged that morning and you're kind of foggy, the first thing that you're doing is ladder drills. It's a good challenge. So um, ladder drills is probably the simplest and quickest. Um, upper body yeah. is going to be, or do you want to add to ladders? Well, I just, what ladders kind of made me think about um, was another thing that like we traditionally look at as a warm up for our athletes, right? Like you think about the ladder drill is like just a warm up for like your younger athletes. Like we're not thinking about them producing power. We're going to use things like jumps, hops and bounds, but skipping is another uh, thing that I use a lot with some of my older adults for power generation that we might also look at as just a warm up exercise for a more relatively young and powerful athlete. Um, so for instance, with some of my older adults, I'll just say, Hey, you're going to skip down and back across the room. Then you're going to come over here and throw a med ball. Um, and because skipping is pretty low impact, you know, it's not like you're jumping or hopping. Uh, you're kind of moving from one leg to the other, the same way the bounds are a little less impactful um, than hopping is. And so it gets them to get hip extension, lower leg extension, um, and to push powerfully and move fast without as much uh, deceleration that's required. So again, like you said it really well, that power is relative. So if you just take warm-up drills often and scale them, mm -hmm. uh, they might be good options for people who might not be as tolerant to the impact that might come with more aggressive jumping, hopping, and bounding type of drills. Right. So what's a warm-up drill for one person might be power drills for another mm -hmm. person. Um, two other exactly. things I like to do, uh, if they can jump rope uh, or skip rope, uh, I like to use a jump rope. The jump rope does all the mm -hmm. coaching for you. So when they miss the jump or the rope hits them in the shins, uh, the rope did all the coaching. I didn't have to tell you that you did it wrong. Uh, if they can't skip rope, 
and we're not necessarily going to spend all of our time learning how we can just get, grab our imaginary jump rope or you just kind of learn to bounce and catch yourself in place kind of like like pogo, like, hops. like pogo hops right so they call the the ankling drills pogo drills uh, so you could do pogo hops in place. Uh, the cool thing about pogo hops is you could also do them laterally, side to side. So I call it slalom, like you're slaloming down a hill and hitting the moguls. You can go forward and back, and you can just go in place as well. So that's a nice, easy way to get your imaginary jump rope out and get a little bit of bounce. So Dan John calls it bounce, mm -hmm. um, which I really, really like. Um, is is just this idea of being bouncy like a basketball uh the other drill that i really like for older population <clears throat> um well if they can box jump great a lot of them uh might be fearful of doing so or i have the fear of them falling and getting hurt so i do a lot of squat drops and a squat drop is essentially you get up to your tippy toes and you fall into a squat where you learn to catch yourself almost like if I was to throw you a water balloon or an egg that you didn't want to break, you would accept the water balloon or the egg with your arms. So I want you to learn how to accept the ground with your legs. Um, and I always tell people that your your muscles your, are the shock absorbers and your joints are like the frame or the axles of a car, right? So you don't want to absorb the force with the frame or the axles. You want to absorb the force with the springs and those are your muscles. So when I come up to my tippy toes and I drop down into a squat and I learn to absorb that force, I'm effectively training my nervous system, but in a very low risk, uh, medium reward type way. Yeah. And some things I thought about when you were talking about the Pogo drills, actually, this old man has actually been doing a lot of jump roping. Uh, <laughs> but it's because, like, my Achilles, I've had this kind of nagging Achilles stuff, and it's been actually very helpful for me doing the pogoing in the jump roping um, just to kind of recondition uh, the Achilles tissue, the foot tissue to be more springy. You know, I feel like maybe mm -hmm. as you get older, we know that your tissue changes. Um, it's going to be less elastic in a, and more, uh, whether if you had an injury, there could be scar tissue, uh, but less responsive to stretch unless we continue to stress it in a way that demands elasticity. Um, and so an interesting thought um, when it comes to older adults is a really interesting study, actually. I think it was a Robert Schlepp fascia study. And what they did is they had a group of like older women. So I think they were all in their 60s. Um, and they were relatively untrained. And what they did is they looked at a muscle biopsy of like their calf. Um, and what they saw was pretty typical tissue for an untrained, um, 60 something year old woman. Um, it was kind of unorganized tissue. It wasn't very responsive to stretch when they kind of, they compared it, um, under a microscope to like a tangled fishing line. Right. Um, that's kind of what they said. I, I, I'll find the study and put it in the, the show notes. And then what they did is they just had them do um, almost like step aerobics where they would go up on like a six inch step and then powerfully push through their calf. So they would step and then like plantar flex. Right? So they weren't even really leaving the ground, but they were doing this you know, training program over the course of I don't remember how many weeks it was. And they went back and they did muscle biopsies again. And what they saw 
was the actual fascial tissue structure change. So obviously, from a power generation standpoint, you get the changes in the nervous system, your ability to produce force, right? But then also from a tissue health standpoint, um, your fascia is going to respond in a way that absorbs force better. And so if you think about, you know, one, like as people get older, they're more liable to have soft tissue injuries. Um, one, because their tissue kind of starts to break down, but also part of it is just because of disuse. Um, the tissue is going to respond to whatever you do regularly. And so for me, thinking about that, the things like the jump roping and the ankling or pogoing has been really helpful to kind of uh, kind of get my lower legs healthier. And for your younger athletes preventative, I think it's actually a really viable thing to just keep in a program, whether it's a warm-up or it's a power drill maybe for someone who's a little bit older. And so just having them work on hopping, or jump roping, like you said, uh, can go a really, really long way to kind of just you know, some of those nagging, whether calf strain, Achilles strain, uh, plantar fascia strain, that stuff, by continually introducing them to that, those stressors can be really valuable. Um, and then also from there, uh, when you talk about the older adults doing things like jump roping or, or ankling, is we know the biggest risk uh, for death as people get over 60 is an accidental fall. And the reason that is, um, a large portion of it anyways, is that they find the people who fall more frequently as they get older or have more stumbles in their walk uh, are usually people who have less lower leg extensor power. Um, so when they walk, they don't push through their forefoot. They tend to shuffle. You ever see how like an older person walks? They kind of get that kind of shuffling gait as they get older because they're not pushing off as hard. Um, and that is going to make them more likely to trip uh, and catch the front side of their foot. Whereas they found these people who had less instances of falls or had a more powerful gait, even as they were in their seventies and eighties, they were stronger through their lower leg. And so, um, think about big picture, um, you know, not power for performance, but power for fall prevention. I know it's something our, our friend Pat Van Galen talks about a lot. Um, as far as fall prevention goes, something you really start to need to think about with your clients as they start to, you know, head north to 60, because it becomes a little more consequential, um, every time they stumble as they get older. Yeah. And, um, I, I would say probably the, the most advanced lower body, um, power drills that we do would be kettlebell swing. And we actually, we consider kettlebell swing an explosive lower body drill, even though you're not really catching yourself or you don't actually get any amplitude or leave the ground or anything uh, because it's the same muscles. So you're accelerating the bell with your hip extensors and essentially a kettlebell swing is a broad jump in place without the pounding on the joints. I've never heard um, somebody say so, it like that, but that's a good way to say it. Yeah. And that's actually, I took that. I heard Dan John say that one time. Well, so you stole it. Of course that, I did. I stole it. Uh, but it was genius. Like, yeah, it's just broad jump. It's the same muscles, the same movement, just without the actual leaving of the ground part of it. Um, so that, that's probably the most advanced. We don't really do hang cleans or Olympic lifts with any of our adults just due to the lack of mobility and the higher risk of injury uh, with those drills. So Olympic lifting, snatches, 
um, hang cleans. We don't really do any of that. Uh, we don't do a lot of the advanced. I mean, we all have our exceptions mm-hmm. to the rule where we do some hurdles. We do, but for the most part, we don't do any hopping. So that's same leg to same leg, uh, just due to the risk of injury. Uh, we do bound and jump, but we do most of our bounds and jumps. So bound is left to right, right to left. Jump is two legs to two legs. Uh, but we don't really have that much of a horizontal component. So the most horizontal component we probably have is with ladders and skipping down and back. Most of our stuff is in the vertical plane, which uh, is it's very linear and there's just less risk involved. Uh, but when you start adding a horizontal component, you do add a little bit of progression or difficulty. So that's another nice way you could add a little bit of difficulty, right? So like I was saying with the uh, the pogos, if you start adding front to back and side to side, now we've got frontal plane and we've got a little bit of horizontal component. So we've increased the difficulty, but mm-hmm. we don't do a lot of uh hopping or excessive horizontal type plyometrics or power drills with our adult populations or any olympic lifting the uh yeah, the most aggressive good... the, again the most aggressive weighted drill we do is kettlebell swing if they have a good deadlift and they can touch their toes and they've kind of earned it uh, and so I would say with the hopping, what we will do uh, mostly is just lay out the agility ladders and have them just hop over the rungs of the ladder. Because in, in truth, I don't really care how high they jump. They could jump as high as they want over the ladder. They could jump three feet off the ground. The implement doesn't need to be there. Often the implement is the intimidation. And that what that is usually if there is going to be a fall or a rolled ankle, that's where the issue is, is they're so worried about getting over the barrier. And so for the adults, I'll just lay out a, a bunch of those ladders. And if we are going to hop, that's a nice, safe, easy way to do it without them. Because unanimously, the adults, even the older ones, are like kids. If you put out a bunch of hurdles, they're going to try to jump the biggest one. It does not mm-hmm. matter. I have a guy in my adult group. Um, I won't say his name. He, he <laughs> like, like, if the biggest box is out, the biggest hurdle is out like he has to go and try to do it and he's like 70 something years old and i'm like he always has an injury (laughs) he's always just an old he's just an old child he's just an old child they don't we don't grow up we just get older right and uh that's right he love the enthusiasm (laughs) but he's always complaining to me about like he plays hockey still um at 70 something he's like my back hurts my hip hurts my ankle hurts and (laughs) and i look over and he's like i'm like please like just stick mm. to the ladder. Like you don't need to jump the 18 inch <laughs> hurdle, <laughs> uh, but he's going to try. So um, I usually, if you just put those out, then it kind of keeps them constrained and they can still generate power and still work on deceleration um, without potential risk for injury. Because uh, once you see someone's sprained an ankle who, you know, is a desk worker or someone and then their ankles, it looks like a grapefruit. You're like, ah, maybe I didn't need you to jump over that uh, today. So yeah, um, One of my favorite things to say, not- uh, sorry, I cut you off. No, keep going. Keep going. I was going to say, one of my favorite things to say to people is I don't care about how high you can jump. I care about how well you can land. So let's focus on the landing first. Then I care about how high you can jump. So if you don't land well, then 
how high you jump doesn't really matter to me. So let's work on your landings, your ability to absorb force and catch yourself. Then we'll worry about the height. And that kind of that question or that comment that I use a lot with my clients came from uh, Coach Dose, who I believe it was during, I can't remember if it was during one of his Perform Better talks or one of his products. He said, how fast would you drive a Ferrari if it didn't have any brakes? Well, I would drive my Ferrari very fast because (laughs) uh, that would end in catastrophe. So you got to build the brakes first. So let's build our braking system, which is strength training and your ability to catch yourself. And then let's build the engine or the horsepower and add that on top Um, Mm -hmm. because you could have the fastest car in the world. But if you can't stop, it's uh, it's just going to sit in the driveway. Yeah, uh, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> or else you're only going to drive it once. So um, that, that's one of my favorite things to say to people is uh, let's, I, I'm more worried about how well you can land than I am about how high you can jump to start. I like that and then, I'll, then, then I'm worried about how high you can jump after you can land well. It just made me think about like, I don't know if anyone has gotten into F1 like I have from watching. Drive oh, yeah. The, oh my well, god so the, like what's uh, amazing about series? those cars yeah i mean well so it made me think about this what's amazing about those cars is not that they go 200 miles an hour that's pretty cool but the fact that when yeah. they slow into a corner they'll slow down to like 30 miles an hour in an instant and then accelerate again like you couldn't race yeah. around those tracks if you can't break um into the corners like the way they do that's the most amazing thing because they show the the speedometer right and the rps yeah. and they'll show like these guys would be ripping down um coming into a corner at like nearly 200 miles an hour and then they put the brakes on the brakes don't lock up right and then they're able to just drop it way down like 50 miles an hour get around the corner and then right. take off again um and so, it's so actually not who can go the fastest it's who has the most control going around the turns and can stay at the highest speed without losing that control. Exactly. Exactly. It's unbelievable. Honestly. Yeah. It's incredible. The F1 series on Netflix is amazing. Drive to survive. And if you watch it, if you're watching a show on Netflix, it must be because this is not much of a, uh, yeah, no, I'm no. Yes. That's one series. I have completed all, episodes of both seasons yeah it's very good um well kind of we were on lower body power talking about upper body one thing yeah we always tell everybody is that if whenever we talk about people opening facilities as we say like invest in getting a medicine ball wall um mm-hmm. because everybody can throw a med ball for the most part like a beginner client child a professional athlete an older person an injured person you most of the time unless like they're both their arms are injured you can probably throw a med ball um, and it's, there's really not many other ways to train upper body power, uh, that is going to be especially non-impactful on the joints than just throwing a med ball. And so, um, I mean, it's good. I don't know if this is gonna be a short answer, but we do a variety of medicine ball throws for adults, um, whether it be chest passes or side tosses or overhead throws, or shot put throws or slams. You don't even need a medicine ball wall for slams. Um, but I would find a way to throw medicine balls, especially if you're training adults. Yeah. And we also, I, I tell people that medicine balls are just jumping for your upper body. They're like, why do we do medicine balls? I was like, well, you jump for your legs. You jump, you throw medicine balls. Cause it's jumping for your upper body. 
uh, we catch all the medicine balls too. So because just like I was explaining, you need to learn how to catch and absorb your body weight. You need to learn how to catch and absorb the ball. So it's not just the release. We also catch all of our medicine balls. Uh, well, there's a few drills where we, we let it bounce once, but a lot of our drills we, we throw and catch because on the catch is when you learn to absorb the force and then you transfer the energy back into the wall or the ground or whatever throw you're throwing. So we do catch a lot of those drills. Um, uh, the Again, it's power is all relative. So uh, if somebody's just, you know, they're throwing as hard as they can and it's not um, – not like what your baseball pitchers throw. It's still power for most people who don't do anything but walk and uh, sit and and watch TV and, and sit on their computer all day. So throwing a medicine ball with even just a little bit of power is power exercise for somebody who doesn't do a lot of that stuff. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen an injury from uh, maybe a couple fingers Finger. trying to catch the ball off the wall but yeah it's generally very 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 safe and we've watched ho- probably tens of thousands of medicine ball throws and only had a couple and only had a couple jam fingers so it's very safe even if you do it incorrectly you're not going to have any catastrophic injuries whereas jumping you can definitely get have some some problems if you let the, again like you talked about jumping on a box that they're not able to do or they're hopping right that could lead to a fall or an acl tear but medicine balls are very very safe for the most part yeah. and we do throw only the soft medicine balls we do not throw any of the rebound or uh, rubber medicine balls that come back really really fast um so yeah i always recommend sand medicine balls where they kind of hit the wall and die or the the soft ones uh like the triple stitched medicine balls are probably the best because they get the the little bit of a bounce and you have to catch them so you get that absorption off the wall yeah the perform better um they're called like perform better extreme soft toss or uh non-rebounding balls they're like they have we have these 14 inch diameter ones that are big and then we also have like the 12 inch or uh, 10 inch rather diameter ones which if you're going to be training kids um or just people who are smaller in general the 10 inch ones work really well because even if their weight isn't any different sometimes it's just hard i'm gonna throw a big one um but that's what i would recommend because they they don't bounce enough that you're gonna you know catch one off the nose or off the finger um and they're softer so like if you're throwing against like i would like we have a cement wall but not everyone's going to throw up a cement wall um they're going to be a little quieter as well um so definitely invest in those and you know find ones that get them light enough uh so they can actually throw them fast uh six pounds or eight pounds even four pounds uh for some people because i'd rather see them throw them quickly um and what's actually really interesting too when you have people start to throw medicine balls uh, you can actually start to see their nervous system develop like some athleticism, right? Like I would say, if you want me to assess someone, how good of an athlete they are, just like have them go through some medicine ball side tosses and you're going to figure out pretty quickly how coordinated they are. Like if they can coordinate hip rotation, shoulder rotation and the pulsing of their nervous system to be able to produce force and relax. When you have people do that for a few weeks, all of a sudden you start to see them kind of like 
figure it out. They get their kind of rhythm down. So it's just a good overall tool. Like you said, very low risk. And generally, those medicine balls will last you a long time. Like we probably put those perform better medicine balls to the test uh, with the amount of volume we do at MBSC. Um, but even ours last for a really long time. So if you're just like a small gym or, you know, you're an independent trainer, that those medicine balls are a good investment because they will last you for a long time. Because um, we do thousands of throws a day with ours and, and they, they last, uh, you know, pretty long time uh, there. So definitely invest uh, in, in a medicine ball wall, or even if you're going to do partner throws, even at MBSC before we were in the new place, um, we didn't have like a big wall to throw out, throw against uh, sometimes. So we'd have to do partner throws. So we'd line the athletes up on other sides of the gym. We do kneeling chest pass, kneeling overhead throw, kneeling side toss. And like, it's not the same as catching off a wall. Like you mentioned, you don't have to catch the rebound, but at the end of the day, you got to work with what you have. And so moving things fast um, is the bottom line. So find a way to get them to do that or just do things slams, chest passes off the floor, slams off the floor, one arm chest passes off the floor. You can find a way to do it, even if you might not have a wall uh, to throw against. If you're in a gym with drywall or you have neighbors who complain, I know that's often a problem Mm -hmm. uh, for people in gyms, but uh, see if you can find a way to get it done. And the, uh, the drills that we don't do really for upper body power are we don't do any plyo pushups just due to the the wrists and the elbows aren't great absorption joints, uh, especially with your full body weight. So when you catch a four, six, eight, ten pound medicine ball, that's all you're absorbing. Whereas if I'm 200 pounds and I launch myself off the ground, I'm catching 200 pounds on my wrists and elbows, which are uh, smaller hinge joints that don't like uh, crazy weight like that. Um, yeah, well, so most we people just... don't really have great wrist extension. Like, look at my oh, yeah. wrist. And yeah, so, uh, like, if I repeatedly drop my body weight onto it, for a lot of people, they're going to come in the next day and be like, oh, like my arm, my yeah. forearms hurt, my hands hurt. And so it's just probably not a great idea for most people. That's why generally burpees, like I'm like, I don't want people jumping onto their stomach uh, repeatedly. Yep. So, uh, but medicine balls are, are a really great tool um, that are much more joint friendly. Yes. Uh, there are, there are power drills you can do with the Kaiser um, or bands. Man, they're, they're okay. They work pretty well. They, they can be hard to get in the correct position. Uh, and the Kaiser is great, but not everybody has, most people don't have a Kaiser. So, um, but if you do have it, you can come up with some pretty creative upper body and some lower body and rotational drills, uh, for power involving Kaiser and bands. But, uh, really it's the medicine ball and being able to absorb, your body weight in different positions that are going to be the, uh, the true power drills. Um, and remember it's all scalable based off of the individual. So what's a warm up for somebody might be a max effort power drill for somebody, somebody else. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that's going to bring us to our next question, which I think is actually a good mm-hmm kind of segue from talking about, you know, training the general population and maybe the older population. And the question was, should I be programming stretching for my clients every time they come in? 
Um, and if so, when should they do it? Should they do it before they train? Should they do it after they train? Um, and so it's kind of good to dive into the overall conversation about should we program stretching? Because this is one of those things, again, that you'll get vastly wide opinions on the internet um, and you'll have everyone mm -hmm. citing research to support them no matter what side that they're on. And so that's why it's important to kind of take it back to the actual practical application um, and understand what are we getting out of stretching? Uh, what is the goal? Um, and then how should we think about applying it? And so I think the way, the place to start here uh, would be to ask, um, you know, what are we as the coach hoping to provide the client by having them stretch and then uh, go from there? Well, the first thing is I know stretching feels good. <laughs> and everybody who stretches says, I feel, I feel so much better. Oh, that's my mom. Hi. What do you, you can leave the dog. Hi. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now we've got sun. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Down, down, Sunny. Uh, so when I stretch or when anyone else is stretched, when they stretch, the, the comments are all the same. I feel, I feel so much better after I stretch. Um, mm -hmm. it, as the coach, what I want is that people can get into better positions after they stretch. Uh, and, if you haven't done anything all day long, uh, stretching is a very, very nice way to get into your body after having not done anything. So instead of me just, oh, hey, let's just start with some kettlebell swings, um, which is very, very advanced and going to load up those muscles very, very quickly, almost like you would load up a bow and arrow. I want to stretch the bow and arrow out a little bit before <laughs> before I start pulling it all the way back. Um, so I, I look at it as one, everybody says it feels good and I know it feels good. And whether the research says it feels good or not, um, it's a nice, gentle, easy way to get you to explore movement and your end ranges. Uh, if you haven't been doing anything all day long, like, uh, like first thing in the morning, you're pretty stiff from not moving all night. Like the first thing you want to do is kind of stretch and mm -hmm. get things moving a little bit. Um, so, and then if I can get you in a better position by doing a little bit of stretching uh, for it, we'll use the deadlift as an example. So we stretch your hips and stretch your hamstrings. And now I can sit that femur back better into the socket. And now I can sit into my hinge more means I'm going to activate or, well, I'm going to get in a better position to deadlift. And then I'm going to activate the correct muscles or more of the, the muscles that I want to activate because now I can get in a better position. So that's what I'm thinking about as the coach, at least yeah, what I'm and, thinking about. And I think what helps to understand is when you say, I feel better, when that client says, hey, after we stretch, I feel better. What they're really saying from a physiological standpoint is they have more stretch tolerance. Physiologically, their nervous system is allowing them to get into a better position. So when you stay in a sustained stretch, right, it affects the stretch reflex of the muscles. So our body is going to eventually, if you keep that stimulus, allow 
more elongation of the muscle as far as like the elasticity goes. We're not changing the length of a muscle. The muscles are always the same length, but um, neurologically, we're allowing more stretch. And the sensation of that stiffness, like you said, that client who sits at a desk all day and then sits in their car to drive to the gym and then comes in, they can work through that stiffness in a low stress, low risk environment on the floor stretching, which two things. One is going to help them to get into a better position actively. I'm not fooling anyone by saying that, like, listen, uh, they're, they're not going to turn into Gumby. We're not making these big, uh, like physical changes yeah. in a matter of a minute. You're not gonna do it's all splits. changes in the nervous system. <laughs> yeah. And it's all right. a change in the nervous system. We're not, um, you know, completely changing the muscle fascicle, but you're giving, you're allowing them to get into better positions. And then when they start to get up and move actively, one, they're going to have better stretch tolerance Two, psychologically, they feel better, And that's huge. If you can provide them something for five minutes when they come in that makes them feel better, mm. then their willingness to go do things that are harder afterwards that might be on, might have been uncomfortable, more uncomfortable otherwise, is improved, right? And I always love the old great cook of like, you, you might have them do those stretching or motor control drills to kind of teach them or help them get in positions better, but then you hit the save button by having them load in those positions, right? And so if right. it's like I'm doing a posterior capsule stretch or a 90-90 external rotation hip stretch when they come in, that's great. And then when I go and load up that goblet squat or split squat out there and they have a big dumbbell at their chest, that's what's going to help them change the tissue quality, the actual tissue quality long term and maintain those ranges of motion over time. And so um, the stretching provides an opportunity. It's that, again, same thing I say about foam rolling, that neurological window of opportunity for them to move a little bit better. It gets some of that uh, lingering stiffness out. And then also more importantly, if you're someone who coaches someone, you know, two or three days a week, you're just ensuring that they're doing it. In the perfect world, they could do that at home and then you could come in and we could just warm up. But anyone who coaches people just knows that most people aren't going to do that. So if we ensure that they get stretching for a few minutes, three times a week, um, by putting it as part of the program, it just gives them a more all encompassing workout as opposed to just saying, Hey, go grab an empty bar and start squatting. That's your warm up, right? Um, that might work for someone who is doing all the other things, but for the majority of your clients, uh, we're going to kind of just make it part of the process for them right when they come in the door. So let, let's dive into the, the theory or the myth, I don't know if it's so much a myth, but the uh, stretching makes me less powerful or makes me weaker. Um, mm -hmm. So the the study that they, they did or they cite was a study where they did a vertical jump and then they had that individual or individuals stretch their hip flexors. I believe it was for eight minutes on each hamstrings. side or hamstrings. I can't remember if it's hamstrings or hip flexors, but they stretched so. their hips for eight minutes on each side and then jumped again. <laughs> common sense, common sense would tell you, yeah, you're not going to jump as high. So if, yeah, you hold stretches for 15 minutes and then jump again, you should jump less like that makes sense uh you did nothing to prime their nervous system like you said you've increased stretch tolerance but you didn't warm up you didn't wake up the nervous system you didn't prime anything so 
and, and we would never do you know a foam roll and stretch for 15 20 minutes and then go right into our power drills we always have a bridge which we would call motor control or the warm up so we're going to do like our little low amplitude skips and jump rope and we're going to do moving or active mobility drills like we're going to use all that that window of opportunity that you spoke about we're going to use that in low low risk low amplitude type ways and then go to our power exercises so yeah if you were to you were to do a vertical jump and then lay on your back and do 20 minutes of deep breathing to relax and then jump yeah. again. Like, I don't think you jump, you wouldn't jump as high. Uh, so yeah, the study that they cite is not exactly um, the best study and is not uh, in a, a representation of how anybody would actually train. Uh, or common sense would tell us how to yeah. train. It's a great example of research being statistically um, relevant, but practically irrelevant, right? Mm. Um, there's You have to look at what the research says. Yes, I would tell you 10 times out of 10, if you stretch a muscle and then immediately after say, I want to produce power through the same muscle, uh, it's not going to work out the way you want. Um, but like you said, the benefit of a really good active warm-up where you're skipping and raising body temperature and actually increasing central nervous system drive um, after you do some static stretching to make these people feel better is a really right. good way to get that, the best of both worlds. Right, um, and that active stretching allows you to get into a better position, which allows you to then have a better warm-up and more activation, which theoretically would then help you jump higher later. Exactly. If you did it, if you did so, it in those steps. And so people always ask, like, well, should I then have people stretch after they work out? Because I don't want them to stretch before. One, realize the research, um, the power, yes, it reduces power, but not if you build a program correctly. Um, two, I don't mind if people stretch after, but I put it before because it puts it makes them feel better for the workout ahead. If they want to stretch after and cool down, um, that's great, too. Um, it, there's probably some benefit to them getting their nervous system to relax and then just doing more stretching that makes them feel good. Um, or if they do it at the time when they come home, but from a programming standpoint, we always put it at the very beginning um, because generally that's what they like and they feel good heading into the workout. So, and for us, again, it's not a long, like 20 minute stretch. We stretch for like five minutes and we get whatever the big rocks are. So whether it's, you know, hip rotators, um, hip flexors, ankles, shoulders, and then it's like, all right, let's go. Um, and yeah. let's start moving. Um, but th think about, you know, with the population in front of you, what do they probably need? If it's a hockey group, they probably need more hip centric work. If it's a baseball group, maybe it's a T spine and some shoulder stuff. It's a, you know, adult population. Think about the joint by joint approach. Where are most people stiff? Um, and just kind of keep those hips, things in rotation. Shoulders. Exactly. You'll make so, most of your money as a trainer. Ankles, hips, and shoulders. Exactly. The big three. And then make sure that they're strength training in those ranges of motion, and they're going to start to get a lot better. It's really unbelievable um, when you see that combination. You have some people who are real stiff um, when they come in to see you, and you just consistently stretch them at the beginning and consistently load them um, in the weight room progressively, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, Like you can touch your toes. You can squat down 
with your heels on the ground. You can get your arms over your head. Um, and it didn't take, you know, an hour of stretching every day. It just took some consistent input over time. Right. Strength training through full ranges of motion is generally pretty good flexibility and mobility training. <laughs> yeah. um, and And to this point, if even if that power thing was to be true, that power, that stretching did affect power. If what's another thing we know about stretching is it reduces the likeliness of injury, right? Cause, uh, and, and when you are injured, when you go to physical therapy and you have something injured, what's generally the homework that they give you? Stretch something, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stretch it. Whatever it is, like either the backside or you're, you need to stretch more is generally the answer. So why wouldn't we stay a step ahead and preventatively stretch to, to reduce the likeliness of injury? So I, I've, I can't remember who Mike used. I think it was LeBron James. I'll use Michael Jordan. Uh, so if Michael, jo- if you, if you had Michael Jordan and you told him to stretch every day, even though it was going to decrease his power a little tiny bit. And instead of playing 55 games because he was injured for 15 of them, he played the whole season. Like I would take him playing the whole season and a little bit of reduction in power because we stretched. And that's just, it's a theoretical, like who knows if that would actually happen. It's a good, it's a good thought exercise. So like, give or take, like, okay, so you decrease a little bit of power, but you're less likely to get injured so he can play more games. Right. So like, obviously that's Michael Jordan, right? We want Michael Jordan playing every single game. Um, And he has a little bit of power to give away. Um, But it's a, it's a thought experiment. So ask yourself like, okay, do, do I stretch, um, to reduce injuries amongst the entire team or do I give up a little bit of, and, and and give up a little bit of power or do I avoid stretching completely and put people at risk to save a little bit of power? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, my answer is going to be, I want my healthiest people playing. And if I have to give up a tiny little bit of power for that, I will. Um, so yeah, it's just a cool. It's just an interesting thought experiment. If that power uh, thing was to be true, yeah, yeah, and I think just like a complete program should have all of those elements in it. You should, you know, stretch the beginning. You should go through your warm. You should like, all of these things. We always say it's a recipe, not a menu. Um, and so ultimately, if you're skipping steps on any way, any part of the program, I think that you're probably leaving something to be desired. Uh, for the people that you work with. So um, those were good questions. We got sent in. Um, again, if you're listening to this, uh, please, if you there's any topics you'd like us to cover, send them in. We'll put it on the docket. Uh, we always like to get listener questions. And uh, I guess it's uh, book recommendation time now, Brendan. Mm-hmm. You have one handy? So I do. Well, my... Uh... The football coach of our our team sent me a Bill Walsh book. Now, uh, 
I was I tried to buy this book online. It's called Finding the Winning Edge by Bill Walsh and Brian Billick. Actually, the Ravens' old head coach uh, was um, worked. He was an assistant coach for Bill Walsh and wrote the book with him. Now, if you go on Amazon, the book is six hundred dollars <laughs> because there's only what? like two people selling. Yeah, there's only like two people selling the. Does Bill uh, Walsh come back stuff. from the dead and read it to you? I, I wish. Um, Jesus. Now he's still alive. <laughs> Is he? Uh, I think so. I don't know. And now I got to look that up. Um, but Zach, the head coach, gave me his version. So uh, that I'm reading it right now. It's one of the top three coaching books I've ever read. So number one is John Wooden on leadership. Number two is Inside Out Coaching. Number three is now Finding the Winning Edge by Bill Walsh. But I will recommend Bill Walsh's other book, which is very, very good. Not as good as this one, in my opinion, for coaching. Uh, but uh, The Score he Takes Care of Itself mm-hmm. uh, by Bill Walsh was a very, very good book. So it's exactly what the title is. So focus on the things you can control, the small wins, uh, day-by-day processes and systems. And if you focus on that one game at a time, the championships, the the wins, the games, they take care of themselves. So focus on the things you can control and your practice and your daily habits. And all of those things accumulate into wins. And you don't have to worry about what the scoreboard is because your, your processes are going to lead you to the promised land or to the championships. So the score takes care of itself by Bill Walsh. And if you want to look for it, it's called finding the winning edge by Bill Walsh. But um, yeah, I, I wasn't going to pay $600. For it. No, I didn't think so. wow. no, very good. Well, I'll yeah. borrow that after for after from you. Yes, I will. I will give that to you. It's very good. Oh, God. Um, so, I've been reading, I just read this book, actually, and it's a nice short one. You can read it in about a week. Uh, Force, uh, the Biomechanics of Training by Dan Cleaver. So um, I know like many of you who probably went to school for strength conditioning or kinesiology or exercise science, I mean, a lot of people probably were like dreaded your biomechanics class. You're like, oh, it's the hardest class. There's math. It's boring. (laughs) You sleep. Because you probably didn't think about the application of what you were learning at the time because you're not actually working in the field. But what Dan Cleeter did was did a very good job making these concepts practical to what you actually do every day. Um, And there's a lot of pictures, always good when there's pictures um, (laughs) and discussions of like practical application and things like that. So it's very good. And it's only like 150 pages. And so you can get through it pretty well. And it just, it's, it, it's a really good foundational book. I would say like, if you are somebody who you like, you, you look at that biomechanics textbook and you're like, Oh Jesus, I don't know what I need to read. What don't I need to read? Cause there's usually a lot of stuff in there that can be hard to get through. This is a really good uh, educational book for coaches that kind of focuses just on the fundamentals of things that you need to know as a coach and makes it more applicable um, to our practical application. So I, I read this in like a week. It was pretty easy to get through. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, zoning off and falling asleep. So I would, I would definitely, uh, recommend it forced by, by Dan Cleaver. All right. Um, 
Yeah. And Bill Walsh has been dead for 15 years. <laughs> I just I just looked it up. <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> uh, you were right. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, well, I That's guess he's not going to autograph any of my books. No, I guess not. Um, um, all right. Well, but yeah, coming so up, we got Perform Better. A lot of events. Summits. The Summits. Yeah. All the perform so better Orlando, summits. We will not be at all of them. No, we will not be. We will. Orlando is this upcoming weekend. We will not be there. Uh, Chicago is in July. Yes. I will be at Chicago, and Providence is in August. And you will be at Providence, correct? Yep. Last weekend in August, I'll be in Providence. Correct. Yep. Got it. Last uh, weekend, Mike will just be in Providence as well. And we have a ton of CFSC workshops. We just had Toronto this past weekend. Vinny was up there teaching mm-hmm. uh, at Training Lane. Um, thank you to Cassie Day, All Day Fit. They did a great job organizing that. Uh, nice. But next weekend, Steve Bigel will be teaching a level one, level two in Philadelphia at Drexel University. Then we have a level two in New York City, June 11th and 12th at Body Space with uh, Kelvin Gary and his team. Then June 25th, we'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio at Block Sports Performance. Really cool little facility in Cincinnati. I've been there before. Um, then we're going to be in Woburn at MBSC, uh July 8th, 9th, and 10th for a level one, level two combo. That one's uh, filled up pretty good. Then we're going to be our first event with EOS Fitness in Bountiful, Utah, July 30th. Then back in New York City for a level one, uh, July 31st at Momentum um, with Marco. And then August, uh, Decatur, Georgia, August 20th for a level one. Then New York again, September 25th. Uh, oh, I just sw- I jumped all the way to September. Chicago, Illinois, August 26th, 27th, 28th. I got excited. I didn't want to skip over Wattage, though. They're great hosts in Chicago. So level one, level two combo. So a lot of level one, level two combos coming up. Uh, San Francisco, I would imagine that's going to be you teaching it, right? August 20th. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. September, September 25th, September, like I said, back in New York. 20. Yep. September 25th is uh, Stronger um, Strength Club in uh, New York City, Kenny Santucci. And then Reading, Pennsylvania in October, October 7th, 8th, and 9th. Uh, for an event there at um, Alliance Fitness Center, Chesterfield, Missouri, at Blue Ocean Fitness, October 22nd. And then Pursuit Performance in Wyckoff, New Jersey, November 5th and 6th for a level two. So a lot of level twos, a lot of combos, pretty much covering all parts of the United States uh, over the next few months. So mm-hmm. uh, get on it. Um, don't say we didn't tell you. We have a bunch of them coming up. Um, unanimously <laughs> once we do an event I'm going to get I get. I bet I get a DM tonight being like when uh, when are you guys coming to Toronto I'll come and get oh, that yeah. today uh, yeah. although we yeah. were just we always here get one, yeah the week after yeah so when are you coming uh, to Dubai like, I was just yeah. in Dubai last week <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly so um, hop on there check those out and yeah so busy few months coming up and we're heading right into summer here yeah here we go Oh, damn. June. June on Wednesday. Yep. You betcha. All right. Well, it was a pleasure, Kevin. And thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, have a good night.